0: From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this episode, the Ribbies are joined by Bernie Marcus, founder of Home Depot. Bernie discusses his early dreams
1: of being a doctor, shares stories about building a $30 billion business, and explains how he decides where to give his money.
0: Plus, recapping the recent conversation about anti-Semitism hosted by BRS featuring Ben Shapiro and Yair Rosenberg. All this and more, Behind the Bima.
1: Good evening, Wednesday night, 9 p.m. I am Rabbi from Goldberg, joined by nobody, me, myself, and I. A little solo intro to the incredible conversation that we have tonight, but proud and happy to bring you behind the beam. It's been a long few weeks. As probably many of you know, our beloved Rabbi the the Mascots family lost their daughter, Esti, whom we in so hard for and learned so much for and gave so much stucca for, and the Jewish people around the world did everything for, and for that, the family is so incredibly grateful. We're broken and heartbroken. And uh, last week, rather than behind the bima, we had a conversation with Rabbi Dr. David Fox, who is, aside from being a tremendous Tamachacham, a great rabbi, a world expert on the issue of trauma. And we had a conversation about trauma and grieving and loss and reaction and speaking to children. And you can find that as a bonus episode in Out of the Shadows. On the Out of the Shadows podcast, or you can find it on the YouTube channel. It's well worth watching. But we took last week off, and as the family continues to grieve and mourn now, up from Shiva, of course, the Moscows are very much in our in our thoughts and in our filos. It's been an action-packed week. Aside um, from that sad and sorrowful thing uh, a- event that happened, of course, in all of our lives, we had our annual Mavaksham trip to New York. We had a number of men who. Went to New York and met with Rashi Yeshiva, Rabbanam community leaders, in an effort to be Mavakshim, to learn, to grow, to be inspired, to yearn, to uplift, to enrich. And it was fantastic. I can't wait to share some of the amazing personalities and insights and wisdom that they shared with us. There is so much to reflect upon and to share. It was really incredible. Rabbi Brody actually was with us, still traveling, as he's wont to do. That's why he's not with us tonight. But I'm looking forward to having the conversation with him and sharing and bringing to you some of those very special moments and some of those experiences. Also, last week, an incredible conversation, two hour dialogue and debate. Ben Shapiro, Yair Rosenberg on the issue of anti Semitism. Unfortunately, we continue to see it continue to rear its ugly head more and more and more in just more horrific episodes. I was just speaking to someone today. Is it that there's more anti Semitism or because of media and social media, we know more about it? Now, the ugly people spewing their hate and vile venom someone has a cell phone so they're recording it and they're spreading it and they're sharing it but it's always been there does it feel like it's more than ever it's just we have access to it more than ever either way we have to be utterly intolerant of it and do what we need to do to eliminate it, to wipe it out we can't stand for it It was a fascinating conversation where does it come from where does it originate what are the things that we can be doing should we always seek to cancel or should we seek to educate we had on behind the bima my good friend Myers leonard who really excited and so happy for him, was signed by the Milwaukee Bucks. Is back in the NBA, a story of redemption, of physical healing. He had injuries and emotional, spiritual healing. I think nobody deserves a, a second chance more than him. He did really everything. And You heard it in our Behind the beam interview. You can find that one and watch that one too. But this question of anti-Semitism, when do we embrace and when do we make someone our friend and when do we lift them up and when do they become our advocate? When do we confront or cancel and when do we try to... Uh, um, address them in a way that is intolerant of them. So these are questions that we discussed, an amazing two-hour conversation. And I'm really, really proud that the conversation, I hope, was a model, an example, of how to disagree agreeably. That Ben Shapiro, everyone knows, is more to the right conservative, Yeah, Rosenberg, who is a, of course, objective uh, journalist who, who writes for The Atlantic, but perhaps is assumed to lean more to the left. And yet, while they disagree vociferously and vehemently on so many things, we had a beautiful dialogue. And and you didn't see before the event or after event, the menschlichkeit and the friendship uh, between the two, because in the end of the day, two practicing passionate Jews have so much more in common than there is that divides them. And we need to focus on that. It's more exciting and fun and provocative when we focus on divisiveness and differences, but when we can start with the baseline and the foundation of how much we have in common, and then we can explore those differences in a meaningful way without any vitriol or name calling and the like, so much more productive. And, and I'm really proud and grateful that we did that for two hours. And if you haven't watched it, it's well worth it. Most things people watch on one and a half or two speed Ben and yet you have to watch on 0.5 speed to really be able to hear it. But you can find it also on our YouTube channel or on a bonus episode of Behind the Beamer. You could listen to it, podcast player. But I really recommend two hours of their of their wisdom and insights, much they disagreed, much they agreed on rather. And some things they disagreed on that are worth hearing and listening and considering what they disagreed and why they disagreed, which is really, really well worth it. But tonight's conversation also, we're going to talk to Bernie Marcus, founder of Home Depot. Home Depot, a national chain that we're all familiar with. Many of us shopped at. Where would we be? Where would Jews, how could Jews make sukkahs without a Home Depot? But he came from very humble roots and humble beginnings, immigrant parents, grew up really in poverty, and his dream was not retail and Home Depot. He wanted to be a doctor. Where'd that dream go wrong? And how did he end up? this incredible, successful founder of Home Depot, who today spends his time on philanthropy, described he's working harder on philanthropy than he ever did on Home Depot. But he's a proud and a staunch Jew, proud of Israel, proud to be Jewish. And we'll get into that conversation about anti-Semitism as well. So grateful that Bernie, a fellow Boca resident, agreed to this conversation. Without any further ado, it's a privilege to introduce Bernie Marcus. It's a great honor to be able to go behind the BIMA with the great Mr. Bernie Marcus, who uh, is so accomplished, not only in the business world, but in the philanthropic world. And as I said before we began, Mr. Marcus was so grateful for the difference that you've made locally in our shared community of Boca Raton, uh, really across the United States and particularly for the U.S.-Israel relationship, what you've done for Jews around the world and for the Jews of Israel we're so deeply indebted. So thank you for all of that and thank you for joining us today.
0: All right. My pleasure.
1: So I want to, I want to start with the following question. In, in, in reading your book and in learning more about you, um, I noticed that there were two major moments in your life, which others would have described as rejection or failure moments that other people might have been negatively impacted by. Um, first of all, the dream of being a doctor. Of after two years pre med courses, applying to Harvard Medical School, being accepted on contingent, you'd have to pay a fee for being Jewish. And you said that you owe Harvard a big thank you for denying you entry. It changed the trajectory of your life. And the second was getting fired as the CEO of the Handy Dan home improvement chain, 1978, what you described as the best thing that ever happened to you. So, What role did failure or rejection have in your life and failing forward? What would you say to other people who run into hardship, how to embrace that failure and, in fact, learn from it and recognize the good in it? Well, I will
0: tell you this, Rabbi. Most of the very successful people I've met have all had a period where something happened untoward that they didn't expect, not prepared for, and devastating. And this is the difference between people. And it's in my life now, I'm 93 years old. I've, I've been in the retail business for, I don't know, 60 years. I've been around people all of my life. And there are two kinds of people. There are people who, when they're rejected or something happens to them, uh, a setback, a real setback. There are some people that spend the rest of their lives talking about it, dwelling on it, living the moment, and it drags them down. And they constantly blame others for whatever happened to them. And they spend the rest of their lives miserable and unhappy. Uh, Fortunately, my mother kind of prepared me for this and said, there are things that are gonna happen to you in your life and you have to move on. The key was move on. And uh, it wasn't easy. I mean, the setback, you know, I had my heart set on, on going to uh, medical school, becoming a doctor, what Jewish kid doesn't. Right. And, but I really <laughs> wanted it. I, I didn't want it because of my parents. I wanted it because I was interested in medicine. And as a kid, I mean, 13 to 14 years old, I knew the body, I understood the, how the body worked. When I went to see my doctor, I would discuss it with him. And you know he would look at me, as oh, it was crazy. A little kid discussing, I would say, tell me what's wrong with me and why. Not just tell me what's wrong and what could I do about it. So that was one thing. So I wanted to be uh, a, a medical doctor and my life was thrown around, and of course, you know what happened, Rabbi. Is that we had the they had a a, uh, a quota system in the medical schools. Every single medical school in the United States had a ten percent quota on Jewish kids. So unless you had money and you could buy yourself in, you weren't going to go to medical school. Wow, it's amazing how we live life and life turns around over and over and repeats itself. I think that the similar things are happening now in the United States. It's not gonna be easy for Jewish kids to get into school, major schools. Mm -hmm. Why they'd wanna go to Harvard or any of these schools is beyond me anyway, because all they learn is what, what is not good for them and what is not good about society and what's not good about freedom. They learn socialism. Mm. And uh, maybe it's a good thing they can't get into schools. And maybe they go to smaller schools where they really get an education and not promulgated and, and brainwashed the way they are in most big universities. I'm talking about Yale, I'm talking about Harvard. I'm talking about uh, all of, all of these schools have the same thing
1: we're seeing that now, the, the Jewish kids graduating our Jewish schools, it's no longer merit-based. So it's no longer your achievement, your IQ, your SAT score in this wave and this new movement today of, of trying to make everyone equal and equal opportunity. And you remove the differentiating factors, which are what allowed you to rise, Home Depot, other success stories. We're seeing them have to find alternatives because it's no longer merit-based. And we're, we're seeing that begin to unfold. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: unfortunate, and uh, most of them have to uh, work at things, woke. If you get involved with the woke world and you agree with all those philosophies, then you can get into school. Otherwise, you're not going to get into these schools. Now, let me tell you something. What we're seeing today is a repeat of what they saw during my lifetime, and I'm talking about the 40s and 50s. It's coming back. I see the same thing happen. I predicted it 20 years ago, and I knew this was gonna happen in the United States. You have schools being taken over by the woke people, and parents are in the dark and don't know what's happening with their kids. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. You have people here watching this. You better watch what's happening with your kids, even in the private schools. The private schools are no better than public schools. They've infiltrated these schools and taught them that socialism is good, capitalism is bad, and that is a dangerous thing. Capitalism is what created myself my whole life, uh, my my success in life. Uh, the fact that I'm a, uh, a wealthy Jew who now gives most of his money away was created by the, the absolute uh, system of being able to sell stock, make money, uh, treat your, your associates well, treat your employees well, but build a business and build a business on good values and then end up with a lot of money so that you can help the rest of the people in the world, which is what's is happening with me.
1: And you yeah. are in extraordinary ways, that, that philanthropy, which I noticed, and we'll get to, part of the philanthropy uh, focuses on Jewish causes. And while you didn't end up in medical school, I see that you do a lot of philanthropy with medical, uh, the medical
0: arena in trying yeah. to help people advance medicine. Yeah, it's still in my kishkus. Yeah. Right. And, and so I'm still interested in medicine, and uh, we're doing a lot of things in medicine. We have, uh, as you know, I'm very much involved with the Boca Regional Hospital. We opened sure. the Marcus Neurological Center. Uh, if God forbid you have a stroke, and I'm talking to you and all the people out there that are watching, right? Be sure you end up at the Marcus Neurological Center. Uh, it's the only place that treats what we call bleeders, hmm. and. If you're going to die from a stroke, it's going to be from a bleeder. It's the only one in this community uh, within reach. And I'm talking about from here to Miami that Mm. handles this and handles it well. So that's a bit of advice for you, uh, for the Marcus Neurological Center. And we set it up to do exactly that and handle all of the things. We have a wonderful doctors there just wonderful of course since it was taken over by baptist they're adding on to the hospital they're now building a new hospital that's right and you live in this community and i i would advise your congregants to commit funds to help this the best hospital in the world you don't want to have to have a treatment in new york city you don't want to have to fly back to new york city to be right. treated for something we want to have those those treatments here, right around the corner, so that you can survive.
1: Absolutely. And it has a wonderful reputation. And we're so deeply indebted to you and your family for for that among the so many other things. So when you look back at your life now, you're able to, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, say not getting into medical school was the best thing ever. 1978, getting fired was the best thing ever. But did you feel it while you were going through it? Were you able to even stop right then and say, this isn't pleasant and I don't want this. But, you know, one door closed, but another door is about to open. No,
0: it took time. No, Mm. no, I don't think, listen, I don't think I'm that strong. Uh, There's a moment of grieving. Uh, Why me? You know, why are they taking this dream away from me? Of course, I was young when I couldn't get into medical school. I was like 20, 21, 22 And I actually quit school. I quit everything and and hitchhiked down to Florida. And I tell a story. I was out on US one hitchhiking south. I didn't know where I was going. My mother had no clue. I packed my bags. I just left the house. And a car pulled up, and it was two Jewish people in it. And I happened to be speaking, I grew up speaking Yiddish in my house. Right. My parents were Russian immigrants, and I saw they were Jewish, and I started to speak Yiddish to them. And they adopted me on, and they said to me, if you would drive, you drive us, we're going to Miami, we'll take you. So it was a three-day drive, and we stopped off at motels, and we ate. And by the time we got, to, we got down to Miami, we were in Mishruchah, and they had an extra room in their condo, and they invited me to stay with them, which was great. And I stayed with them for about six months. It was wow. and a great experience for me as well. My mother didn't know where I was, and this was the, now this was the healing. Now I started thinking about what I was going to do, and my mother's influence, when I finally let her know where I was, that I had to go back to school. You know, Jewish people, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer, you have to be something. So I applied to pharmacy school, dental school, chiropractic school. I was accepted by all of them. I took pharmacy because I could live at home because I had no money and my parents had no money. And I got into pharmacy and of course I hated pharmacy, but it, it, it bordered on the retail And one thing leads to another. And I ended up in a retail business working for two guys from Harrison, which is all in my book, Kick Up some Dust. And you'll know that it was not an easy transition, but I found out that I love retailing. It was like in my blood. It excited me and, and all of my past, my medical disappointments, et cetera, et cetera went away because I found a new life. And that was servicing people, giving them what they wanted and creating a value for them. And I love working with people and training people. And in retailing, I had such access to that. My career at two guys was great. And I think it was the basis of my whole retailing. And Home Depot had portions of what I learned at two guys from Harrison uh, and the the two guys lessons carried me through uh, the rest of my life. And I found myself in love with retailing, which I never fell out of love with, Mm. but my love for being a Jew and understanding what it meant to be a Jew and how fortunate I was carried me all, all during this period of time. Uh, my 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 support for israel which i'm sorry to say many of your congregants today have lost the love for israel they don't understand that the reason they're successful is because israel survived during the wars and israel became a great state and anti-semitism actually disappeared during the time when israel was declared a state and for the next maybe 15, 20 years. Uh, It wasn't until the Obama years that anti-Semitism started back up again in the United States. We had a free ride. We were living here just like everybody else. We weren't in danger. But I'm sorry to tell you that I think that Jews are in danger today. I really feel it. I see it on college campuses. I see it in where people are attacking Jews, but we're in a, a yarmulke, uh, you know, kids are in, in in colleges are afraid to wear a Star David because they're attacked. So mm. this is not a good life, that a good world that we live in? And I'm we're doing everything. The Marcus Foundation right. is doing a lot of things to upset that. And to it's get a huge our-
1: concern, and and you know something about it because I know that when you were a child, you write in your book. You faced anti-Semitism, there were bullies who beat you up, and at 10 years old, you earned the respect of a gang who invited you to join, and that, that's what got you your protection. So at 10 years old, right, so 83 years ago, uh, what helped fight anti-Semitism was connecting with the bigger bullies. If you were part of a gang, if you were part of the muscle, then then the Jews were protected. But what do you think are some of the things that we should be doing today. We're seeing anti-Semitism, as you said, whether violence on the streets of New York or whether messaging, hate messaging here in South Florida, a swastika was broadcast, was projected onto the side of a building. There are significant people are no longer ashamed. They're not embarrassed to tweet or to post or to text. You have uh, popular podcasters, Joe Rogan, who just this week, I don't think he's an anti-Semite, but he promoted an ancient trope connecting Jews and money. So some of the old ways of handling anti-Semitism aren't working. And the organizations that have spent millions of Jewish dollars and of others to fight anti-Semitism have not succeeded because it's rearing its ugly head. So yeah. what, what can and should we be doing? What where do, where do you think and, and what are you trying to influence how we can impact anti-Semitism?
0: Well, we, we recognized this about 20 years ago, actually predicted what was going to happen now. And um, I was reminded yesterday I had a visitor. And he said, you told me that you about this 20 years ago yeah. and, and, and how right you were. I'm sorry that I'm right. But, you know, people like myself, I mean, we're talking about uh, philanthropists that are really concerned about it, that are aware of it. The problem is that most people are not aware of it. Right. Most people don't understand it's happening. On college campuses, it's very difficult for kids to survive, Jewish kids. They're being attacked constantly by the administration, by their professors, and by the Palestinians and by other anti-Israel Jews. May your congregation probably has some Jews uh, in the universities that belong to some of these organizations that are anti-Zionist, hate Israel. Well, if you hate Israel, Ultimately, it means you hate Jews as well. You know, we got 8 million Jews over there and they have to survive. So I am meeting with all of the people that I meet with. Uh, there are so many different uh, ways that they're trying to turn this around. And they are investing a lot of money and energy. The old organizations like ADL don't work. Really don't work anymore. And I say this to you bluntly they're not a good organization. They're more concerned about uh, the Muslim population than they were about the Jewish population. And so, what do you do? Well, we came up with something that we think is a positive, among other things. We have a lot of litigation that's going on at universities all over the country trying to punish these people and administrations for allowing this to happen. But we, we started something called route one, route one, R O U T E one. And what we do is send young people who are in their sophomore and junior years in high school to Israel for a three week period. Before they go, they go online. And they have to spend eight hours. We pay for the trip, by the way. They pay a small portion. We pay the biggest, the bigger portion. So it's called Route One. And I would suggest for your own congregation, anybody in your congregation that's in that age lane, age limit, that you should get them on Route One. We're sending this year, uh, last year during COVID, we had 4,000 people. 4,000 from all over the country this year we're gonna have 5,000. next year about 7500 mm. and they're gonna go up every year from there the three weeks that they spend there is not playing games and having parties they're learning about Israel why Israel's there why it was formed why is that why is it was a it was a desperation. To, to save Jews from all over the world and give Jews a homeland because they weren't welcome anywhere. And eventually they were thrown out of every country, which we see now. Being a Jew in France is not a good experience. Being a Jew in the UK is not a good experience. A uh, Brussels or Germany, it's the same thing all over the world. The only place you feel safe is, is in Israel and Israel needs our support, whether you agree or not. They have politics the way we have politics. I I don't leave this country because I disagree with Biden. All right, I'm still an American. He's still a president. I respect the fact that he's a president. I don't have to agree with him, but I don't leave the country. These people are being pushed out of France and England and other places and they end up in Israel and it's the only place they're gonna survive. I would hate to think that all the Jews in the world have to end up in Israel. I would like to think that we could live in this country the way we have in the past, but if Jews don't wise up and they don't begin to understand that it's right under your nose and they say, well, now it'll go away, you know, it'll disappear, it's not really anything. Uh, th- that never
1: served us well. Yeah, through history, that never served us well. When we, you know, you know, the holiday of Purim is coming up, and Rabbi Soloveitchik had an insight about the holiday of Purim. He said, you know what the miracle of Purim was? There was a man who rose up, Haman, and he said what he planned to do to the Jews, and the miracle is we believed him. Because throughout our history, you know, the people get up and they threaten, and they say explicitly their feelings or what their intention is. We excuse and we rationalize and we explain and we and the miracle is when we say, you know, we believe them and we better do something about it. And we've got to believe them with anti-Semitism on the rise. You know, I think we think one of the biggest responses we have to have is to be a proud Jew, a practicing Jew, a passionate Jew. When Jews cower and Jews are afraid and Jews apologize and Jews are defensive for being Jews. And when Jews are ignorant as Jews and Jews are disappearing as Jews. We shouldn't be surprised when other people also want to erase us. But when we stand up proudly and passionately, and when we practice, I think we're missing an opportunity. I wonder what you think about this, Mr. Marcus, on these campuses and elsewhere. You know, the, the, the kid who's being told you can't wear the, the Star of David, we should be telling him, look, if you're going to be harassed or discriminated against for being a Jew, you might as well learn about what it means to be a Jew. So let's leverage anti-Semitism as an opportunity for outreach. Let's inspire and let's let's awaken this next generation to be passionate, proud, practicing Jews who tell the world, I'm not going to apologize. I'm not defensive. I'm not going to stop wearing. And that's what you're doing, sending them to Israel, which is which is brilliant to come back from that three week trip to be proud and knowledgeable and practicing Jews who don't want to stand down. That's what that's what you did. Right. When you were 10 years old by affiliating with the muscle, you said,
0: I'm not going to stand down. I'm not going to apologize for being a Jew. I I, I hope. I hope this is a sermon that you're teaching in your synagogue because many conservative rabbis don't do this around the country, really make more excuses than they do uh, telling people that they have to be proud of who they are. Listen, how much do we contribute to the society? Think about what Jews do in every part of society, in science, and look at what happens in Israel. Every phone in the United States is part of an Israeli uh, piece in it. Every plane right. that flies is flying because Israel made a part that, that makes that plane fly. And here in the States, you think about all the things we've done in medical science, how many medicine, medical science uh, people I meet who are Jews around we're, we're helping society and we're helping this country get better and we should not be ashamed of who we are. And we do it because of the strength that we have of Judaism and our, our bodies that right. tell us this is what we have to do. Yeah. It gives the courage. And we have to have courage because if we sit back and we don't fight, they're going to run all over you. And to allow people in Congress in Congress to be anti-Semitic and not get a kick him the hell out of office, then you have to be ashamed of yourself. And I'll tell you one thing, you better get involved with politics because if you think politics is the other guy's problem and not yours, then you're making a very big mistake. You think about some of the Jewish members of, of the house that right. support, AOC and her and her gang of people, they 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 support them every year. They know better than anybody else. In fact, they're worse than anybody else because they know what the problem is. And when I speak to them individually, they say, Well, you know, we're gonna change them. You're not gonna change them. Right. They're gonna change you, which they already have, because they support them. So I think we have a lot to do with from your side from learning that we have to be who we are and be proud of who we are. We are great contributors. If you look at the world of philanthropy, right. Jews Jews are involved with philanthropy. I think I think I remember the number was something like between 15 and 20 percent. We represent a half percent of the population. And yet most of the philanthropy in the United States comes out of Jews. And the Jews, unfortunately, are supporting universities that are Mm -hmm. worse enemies. Every time I pick up the paper and I see a Jew give $125,000, $125 million Million. (laughs) to a place like Yale, a place like Harvard, a place like USC, it makes me sick. How stupid can you be? You're like feeding the enemy. We get, we do things with universities, but we do programs and we control it. Whatever we give them, we know where it's being spent. And it's not spent on woke. Hmm. It's not spent on building a sports arena that doesn't help anybody. It's built on, on, on making these kids smarter. And so... I I think before you give money to universities, use your head, use your head. How is the money going to be used? You're putting some of these universities at Harvard are sitting with billions of dollars, billions, billions. And yet you go to Mass General and it's a crap house. Boca, the Boca Regional Hospital will have a better facility than than the one in, in Massachusetts. Because they don't put the money back in. They're bankers. They're they're, they're bankers running running money, making money each year, and people continue to give them money. How stupid is that?
1: You know, How- you know the story they tell about the the frog and the beaker that Right, you know, the the you have a pot of water and it's on a very very slow low flame, a slow boil, and the the frog will boil to death because it's going so slowly, it doesn't realize that it's going to be killed. So the frog boils to death in the this low flame and the slow, and that's what's happening around us, as you're saying. There's an assault on our values, assault on on our identity. There's an assault on all that we believe in that brought us here, and it's it's happening systematically, but it's also happening in a way which is a little bit nuanced, and people are contributing to their own demise in that way and you know that you know we're orthodox but every denomination every stream all of us need to take pride and lean further in don't lean out from your judaism don't take off your judaism lean in be more proud more passionate more practicing and and encourage others the beauty and the contributions like you said mr marcus jewish people are less than a percent we're a tiny fraction of the american public but did you know that 20 percent of kidney donors in america are jews 20 percent and if and let's promote all the positive and let's unapologetically and unabashed and not defensively, let's share that. Now you you in the book, you talk about it, you've shared that in your early days of, of raising money for Home Depot, you were stereotyped as a Jew. And, and what was that experience like? Was that anti-Semitic or did you feel more of a responsibility that if you're stereotyped as a Jew, you've got to carry the Jewish banner, Jewish identity? What was that like?
0: No, no, I, I have to tell you something. My partner Arthur Blank and myself we're very proud of being Jews. Hmm. And I used to talk about Sadaka. I would go before these audiences of anti-Semites and I would talk about Sadaka, how Home Depot invented Sadaka for big companies. Home Depot, whenever there was a hurricane, when there was an earthquake, we raced to help the people that were our customers. And we didn't care about what their their, uh, Religion was. We didn't care if they're Christian or Muslim or anything. We helped them because it was the right thing to do. And we talk about Sadaqa at Jews. This is what drives Jews. Most Jews, that's why we you give, like you said, 20%. Uh, nobody else gives that kind of percentage uh, except for Jews. And we have to be proud of what we are. Uh, I am, I have been, and I always will be. And I'm a promoter of it. And I tell young people when I meet with them, but they should also. On Route 1, that's what we teach them, Rabbi. Mm. And the amazing thing that happened to us, we thought that these people, they have a, a very extreme three weeks. And it's not smoking pot. It's not drinking beer at night. It's really understanding the state of Israel. By the time they come home, and I've talked to many of these kids, the one thing that shocked us when I say, what did you learn most on this trip? And they said, how proud I am to be a Jew. Not a Zionist, but a Jew. Mm -hmm. We thought they would come back pure Zionist. They did, they were supportive of Israel. But all of a sudden they wanted to have Shabbos. They wanted to have a candle lighting on every Friday night. They came back, they talked to their parents and they say, we wanna uh, light a candle on Friday nights. We wanna have a Shabbat. We wanna have the their family sit down together. We wanna to go to the synagogue together. And th- every single one of them, I mean, it, bar none and this was the shocker of route one that they came back feeling this way and many of them went back to israel wow. and 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 decided that they wanted to either live there or or get more training for like another year so it was israel taught them how proud they were of what they accomplished when you look at the Middle East, it's barren. It was sand. Right now, they're rebuilding the Negev. They're just rebuilding it. Right. Imagine a lake in the middle of the Negev. And they're building mm-hmm. a lake in the middle of Negev in Beersheba. And, you know, before Israel we was formed, Jerusalem, and that whole area is a swamp. <laughs> with malaria, and, and, and all kinds of terrible things living there, and Jews turned it around. Today, Jews are 90% self-sufficient on water. Mm. It's amazing. And meanwhile, the Arab world is busy trying to destroy Israel, instead of learning from Israel, instead of saying, you know, let us be like Israel. Uh, fortunately, we have the the Abraham Accord, and that's spreading, and I hope there are more countries. I hope that Saudi Arabia and that Egypt join this group because what they're doing is they're learning how to make their own country better by listening to the Israelis, the brilliance of the Israelis. Imagine 90% of the water having a lake in the middle of Beersheba. Well, who would ever do that? Certainly right. not in an Arab land. So um, we have a lot to word and we have to be proud of what we've accomplished. And what happens with these kids on Route 1, they see all of this and they say, holy mackerel, they can't believe it. Um, what's the organization called? Um, uh, Birthright. There's an organization that shows all the inventions that come out of Israel. Uh, it, it it's it's brilliant. I mean right, right. I I've seen things there that I don't believe where blind people can see, where uh, people who don't talk can communicate and they have a process for all of this stuff. Used Incredible to- where did,
1: where did you develop this love of Israel? Did it come from your parents? What what age were you your first trip to Israel? And where's your favorite place to go in Israel? Um,
0: I, I've i been involved with Israel for about 40 years. Uh, I've been an active. When I ran Home Depot originally, I had no time. But if you remember 40 years ago, I don't know how old you are, Dr. Rabbi Goldberg, but 40 years ago, they were going to pass a law on who's a Jew. I might, in other words, if you weren't born a Jew, and if, if, if your grandparent wasn't Jewish, you weren't considered to be a Jew. And I got involved with it, and I worked together with somebody like George Schultz, and we formed Israel Democracy Institute in Israel, which is today... The most powerful organization in Israel. And it's non political, but it helps make the laws that keep Israel safe and strong and democratic. And uh, I've been involved since then. So 40 years ago, I remember going to Egypt and to, uh, to uh, what well, was it, mainly Egypt. And I saw the poverty. And then when I crossed the border and I went into Israel, it was like going from, you know, about 100 years ago or 200 years ago into modern society. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe that they did what they did in such a short period of time. So I, I, was, I, I became a lover of Israel, I think, I have problems sometimes with their politics, but for crying out loud, they're saving Israeli Jews. They're saving Jews from all over the world. And they're piling at Israel now. They're coming from Russia. They're coming from the UK. They're coming from France. And I know personal experiences of people who have left France because it's not safe for Jews in France. It's not safe for a Jew in France. And that's amazing because Jews have been part of the French uh, society for forever. But they're going to drive you out wherever you are. And if we don't change it here in this country, in 25 years, they're going to drive us out of this country as well. It's time to stand up. Be
1: proud Jews. Now's the time. It's time It's
0: time to fight back. Yeah. First, well, first of all, your
1: your passion is incredible. I wish that you know people half your age, quarter of your age, would have the same passion for the future of the Jewish people like you do for Israel. It's incredible. And
0: well, I think I think they have to understand it first. If you don't right. understand it, if you're oblivious of it, and you're naive, when you're stupid, then then you're stupid because you don't understand what's going to happen to your children and your grandchildren and maybe you don't give a damn cuz you won't be on this earth i give a damn and i really worry about where my grandchildren are going to be and where their children are going to be in the years to come and i want this world to be a safer world for them i don't want any, anything for nothing right i don't want retribution you know we've been we were slaves for 2000 years knocked out of every goddamn country in the world we don't want retribution Just treat us with humility, treat us with respect. That's all I want. Don't attack us in public because of who we are, our religion, which has nothing to do with how we conduct ourselves in this country. I mean, if you look at half the hospitals in the United States, they're built by Jews. Go to NYU Langone and look at the buildings. NYU Langone, every building is a Jew. Every single one. Mm-hmm. Hospitals. You go to every hospital in the world. It's all built by Jews. So, you know, I think about the things that I did for Crown loud. I built an aquarium in Atlanta. Everybody goes sure. to we got three million people a year. We I've been there. Yeah. We, my kids you know,
1: my kids loved it. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. We don't say you're allowed to come in if you're a Jew. If you're a Christian, you can't come here. If you're Muslim, you can't come here. If you if you're black, you can't come here. We don't say that. We want everybody to enjoy it. And this is the motto This is the motto: of how Jews behave themselves. But when somebody puts a finger in your eye, you bite that goddamn finger off. You don't take that crap. We are powerful as Jews, and we have to fight back. Use your power. Stop hiding. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Mr. Marcus, we need more of that. You could be 93 years old. You're on the front line for us. It's not an age. We need that that passion and we need to stand up and we need to be proud. Everybody cowers, apologize, don't tell them, don't show. It's the opposite. You know, you see this in, in Israel. When did Israel make peace? Israel made peace with Egypt. Israel made peace with Jordan. Israel made peace when it had governments who were strong and powerful and proud and the ones who were ready to make concessions and apologize and live in fear have never yet made peace. Peace comes. People respect you when you respect yourself. They respect you when you're proud and you're strong. That's when they respect you. That's what brings the peace. And that's yep. what we need more of for sure. Let yeah. me ask you, are there projects out there that you say to people running the foundation that you only wish someone would come to you with this project? I've got money to invest. What are people not focused on right now?
0: Well, you know, I, I think that you have to look at the bottom line. If you're gonna go invest money, let's say in Israel, just to get your name on a building, doesn't mean anything. What effect is it gonna have on everyday life? We got very much of uh, the Mogan David uh, dome. Uh, we went there about, I don't know, seven years ago and we looked at it where the blood supply was. Imagine 98% of the blood supply was in in danger every single day. Every time a rocket came over, they could have knocked the blood supply of Israel, 98% of the blood supply of Israel. You want to talk about, you want to getting the jugular vein and killing somebody? They, if the Arabs had hit this place and they show me how they move from building to building, from room to room to save the supplies, So we got very much involved in building a new blood supply area. It's three stories underground, a direct hit. Can't put it out of commission. It's self-sustaining. It's got its its own engineering and a direct hit, either from a bomb or a rocket or even poison gas they've made every single thing available so everything so the blood supply is so when you're in Israel and God forbid you have an accident you're going to know you're going to get blood the IDF knows they're going to get the blood and you know it's a, it's the kind of organization that has the ability to save lives in Israel and make Israel a stronger place that's the kind of place that we support. That's great. So we, we pick out places where we see there's a bottom line. On campuses, we we have we we support places like Hillel, where we know there's a bottom line. And we do inv- involve ourselves with a lot of litigation where mm-hmm. the administration allows things to happen. And believe me, the administration is made up of Jews. Hmm. And they allow anti-Semitism on the campuses. And they're uh, like, don't make noise. You know, keep quiet. Maybe it'll go away. It's not going to go away. It gets worse. So we sue them for Title VI. And once the threat of suing and, and the cost of money hits them, they start backing off. And they start acting like the way they should have been. And listen, we had in Atlanta where they put a, in the, uh, in the on the campus where the kids live, uh, signs on every door, Jews get out. Not Israelis get out, Jews get out. You're not welcome here. Hmm. And the administration just allowed it to happen. And we happen to give a lot of money in different programs to the university. And we, like other people, we got them all together and we threatened that that was it. If you didn't solve the problem, you're not getting any money anywhere. And we got together, put pressure on, and sure enough, they acted in in a heroic way and did the right thing. So I'm just telling your congregants, don't allow this crap to happen. Somebody what do you think
1: about, Mr. Marcus, what do you think about the following idea? I had a friend whose son was at a prominent Ivy League institution. They have a Hillel there. And this is a kid who served as a lone soldier in the IDF before going to this Ivy League. So he put his life on the line to fight for Israel. And he went and he asked the Hillel director there, let's put an Israeli flag in the in the lobby of the Hillel. And the Hillel director said, You might offend people, Israel's an occupier, Israel's this, we can't put a flag. So I thought to myself, and and you're the one who could get this done, why don't we make it an official Hillel policy that the lobby of every Hillel has an American flag and an Israeli flag? And every Jewish kid on that campus will know that's a Jewish embassy. If I feel threatened or I feel in danger, I want to be around other Jews, I see the American flag and the Israeli flag in the lobby of every Hillel in this country. What do you think about that?
0: I think it's a good idea by my Goldberg, I'll work on it.
1: Okay, thank yeah. you. it would be fantastic. You've been very generous with your time. want to talk at just Home Depot a couple minutes because how could we not learn from, from one of the most accomplished people in, in, in the history of this country and building something that when you started it with one and two stores, and now you fast forward, 2,300 locations, half a million employees, a market value of 330 billion with a B dollars, did you dream when when you got fired and your reaction was, let's go start our own store, you started with one store, you had to borrow money, raise money. Did you ever dream it would become what it became? And I would argue, you mentioned when you started with retail, two guys, I would argue maybe your retail began when you were a waiter in the Catskills, having to serve all those Jews in the Catskills. Yeah. That's retail business right there, no? So yeah. what, what was the secret of your success? What was the secret you know, I, I, I actually, people?
0: I actually believe that we would have fifteen hundred stores. I, I actually wow. believe that, which was, you know, way off the off the charts. But I knew that the United the people. This was such a great. Remember, before Home Depot started, people had to go to an electrical store, a hardware store, a lumber yard in order to do something. You had to go to fifteen stores. For the contractor, this was a nightmare. In order to build a house, that's why houses were so expensive. And we made it easy by putting it under one roof. And we made it easy because all the prices were a third less than what retail was at that point. Mm -hmm. And then we had people in the stores who would help you do a job. So I can't tell you how many businesses we started. I mean, thousands of businesses. Contractors who are now in their own business, small businesses, a contractor building a house, redoing a house, uh, remodeling a house, uh, plumbers, uh, everybody loves the Home Depot because it makes their life easier. It's much less expensive and time is money. And so even when the world is suffering, I mean, retail is suffering around the country, Home Depot is doing well. And I want you to remember, Home Depot has never forgotten Sadaqa. Hmm. We are still very much involved in giving and helping organizations around the country that are meaningful. We give the things that mean something, that help people. And so I'm saying to you and your congregants, why would you shop anywhere else?
1: Hmm. Why would Those you core values? Right, you're supporting the values of Home Depot. I want you to know, I always I'm a Home Depot guy all the way. Before sukkahs, you know, the Jews around the around the country were the biggest Home Depot before the holiday. Everyone's got to put up their Sukkah, and you got to buy the lattice and you gotta buy the screws and the nail. Jews, we don't know what we're doing when we walk in this comedians of <laughs> a whole team. They're lost in Home Depot, they don't know what they're doing, where they're going. But everyone and, and your stores are so amazing. I, I'm sure you know this already. But some of the Home Depots put out a whole sukkah display, and yes. they make everything available and easy and support the Jews to be able to put up their sukkahs. It's fantastic, those values. We love it.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You, they still you, do. Still you do. said
1: that you said that one of your secrets to your success was surrounding yourself with people who are better than you. What did you mean by that, surrounding yourself with people better than you? How you do know, you find them? Is that, oh, true oh, for, yeah. is that true for our business, too, in the
0: synagogue? Well, you know what? If you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are, you end up with a better product. It makes life easier, makes your life easier, unless you're insecure. I'm not insecure. Arthur's not insecure. So we went out, we got people that knew more than we did Mm. in the financial area, in the internet, in, in retailing itself. We hired some geniuses guys who are real promoters, we allow them to flourish. And they flourished, as they flourished, we flourished. we became the marketing place in America for new products. And more importantly, for teaching people how to use the new products. And so our formula has continued through the years, and does it even now. But Sudaka is still a heart of Home Depot. I mean, whenever there's a hurricane, I could tell you when there's a threat of hurricane, let's say here in Florida, the trucks already are loaded with batteries, with generators. They're sitting on the ground right now, waiting for the next hurricane or the next earthquake or the next, and they travel all over the country. They're, they're in place, ready to go, so that people that need it, we know we're going to be able to get there. So mm-hmm. it's a big part of our country, our company, and everybody that works for us is proud of the fact that we're there for our customers, which is the most important thing of all. And the people that work for you stay
1: for a long time. They, they wear how many years they've been there, and it's not a business that turns over. That tells you a lot about the culture of the business that the people stay there. You've also spoken about the difference between what you call customer service and customer cultivation. What's the difference between the two?
0: Well, customer service is just selling somebody something. If you come into the store and you wanna buy a faucet, we would rather teach you how to save your old faucet at a third of the money or a 10th of the money and then you go home, you find out it works. And next time you come to the Home Depot, that's where you come because we teach you how to do it. Right. At the, at the, we're not interested in making a big sale. In other words, nobody's on commission so that when you come into a store, we don't care what you buy, as long as it's the right product that helps you. And that's all, that's all we're concerned about. And that's the philosophy of Home Depot. So, uh, and everybody that works for us knows this. Uh, We had, I just got a letter from somebody that told me they had a whole big problem that they had to uh, fix in their house. They needed certain kinds of pieces of lumber and they had no way to transport the lumber to their house. And our guy in our store, cut the lumber down to the pieces that he needed. He did it in the store. It fit in the car. And when the guy got back to his house, it fit together. So he basically did half the job for the person. Mm. And he waited for him. It was his time off. He had already checked out. And he waited for him to come back. And, and bring his car. He had a bigger car. And the guy wrote me a letter and said, I've never had this experience before. This happened to me last week.
1: Wow. That's amazing. Do you ever go undercover to our local Home Depots here in Boca?
0: Yeah, I can't because they know me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they know when I walk in, I, I usually wear a cap, you know, baseball hat or something. And I slink in through the lumber yard. <laughs> But it, it takes them maybe ten minutes to identify me. And before I know it, I'm surrounded by people. so nice. but listen, I'm happy I'm out of there 20 years that they still remember me.
1: If you ever need anything, we'll pick it up for you. Don't just let us know. we're happy to go get it for okay. you. Nobody Nobody knows us. Mr. Marcus, you're, you're incredible. your energy. I, I, I saw you said once, uh, recently. At 93, you're working harder for philanthropy than you ever did at Home Depot. So thank you for continuing to work for the Jewish people and work for freedom and work for the values that we hold dear. And thank you for, for going behind the bima. Know that we're just down the block from you. You've got a congregation and rabbis who passionately care about the same things as you, standing up for Israel, standing up for the Jewish people. And we have a congregation, we have a night for Israel, all the events that we do to stand up for, for Israel and stand up for the Jewish people. And we're excited to partner together and we thank you for all that you do.
0: All right, thank you. Uh, make sure you get your children, sophomores and junior, on Route One. Absolutely. That's very, that's very, very important.
1: We're gonna encourage it for sure. We're gonna encourage it, thank you.
0: All right, thank you very much. I hope you
1: enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It's amazing. Somebody who's not a young man is still so active and passionate and vibrant and really so much to share in such an eloquent way. It's really refreshing to see that pride and that passion for the Jewish people. And all of us need to get involved and whatever our capacity is, but we all have the opportunity to try to influence our surroundings and fight for the things that we believe in and that we care about and that we want to make a difference on. And Bernie's one example of it. He should continue to have many more years and continue to do many great things. We're so grateful to him for having been on Behind the Bima. Thank you to Glenn gosh for his help with that connection and for arranging the opportunity. And until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.
0: Thank you for listening to Behind the Bema. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bema.